Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. A trigger warning. This episode includes mention of suicidal ideation and behavior, as well as discussion of a suicide attempt that the guest survived. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with Diana Chow. Diana is a mental health advocate. She's the founder of Letters to Strangers, and she lives with bipolar disorder, and she's going to talk to us about that. So, Diana, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure and honor. Yeah, same here. Very much an honor. Um, You're talking to us all the way from Singapore because you're over there studying abroad. So this is quite an adventure for us. And um, on a very cute, tiny little microphone, I wish everyone could see. (laughs) It's like dollhouse size. Yeah, a Barbie-sized microphone for you, Diana. So um, I figured we'd start from the top as we always do. And I would love for you to begin by sharing a bit of your story. Tell us when and how you first realized that you had something going on with your mental health and what steps you've taken to get diagnosis and treatment since then? For sure. Um, So, you know, I think, uh, so, okay, so I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was 13 years old. And I think around that time, it's always a little bit difficult to navigate uh, mental illness and mood disorders, especially because there is, you know, with puberty an expectation that kids are going to get moody and uh, maybe this is just all part of growing up. So, that was definitely something that um, I internally uh, sort of stigmatized myself with for a very long time, just trying to dismiss uh, the severity of my symptoms um, because I didn't think it was, you know, worthy of a diagnosis or whatever. Um, But, you know, when I was around that age, what was happening to me was I constantly just felt like I hated myself so much that I didn't deserve uh, the chance to breathe, that everybody would be so much better off without me. And I um, started actively, you know, engaging in suicidal behavior and thoughts. And that is, you know, a sort of turning point where no matter how much I was trying to dismiss my symptoms, you can't really argue with the evidence you leave on yourself. And so, um, I was lucky and kind of unlucky in that my school was having a suicide prevention assembly every year um, where they brought in like a psychiatrist uh, or a psychologist. And I don't necessarily think that the um, format in which they did that conference every year was the most effective, but that's a whole other issue. Point being, as I was able to like learn a little bit about the basics of mental illness it occurred to me that perhaps there is a deeper issue going on with me. So that was like the sort of starting point in which I decided to try to seek out help and an official diagnosis. But it took me many more years after that to really wrestle with um, the self-stigma, the stigma within my community and my own family. And it really wasn't until the past few years when I've become more open about my advocacy and my own story behind it that I've more uh, committed myself to seeking treatment, medication, things like that, uh, and found myself definitely taking a turn for the better. It's really amazing because you you really hit on all the main points here, you know, the way in which we self-stigmatize, but also the way in which 
everyone lives in a family, a culture, a home, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a a little (laughs) group of people, a town, a village, whatever your village may look like that may have a different take on mental illness um, and how that's informed your own take on that as well. And I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about that. You know, what was it that was standing in your way of seeking health and you know, in terms of actually getting the diagnosis at 13, do you think you were experiencing symptoms much earlier? Yeah, you know, I think uh, I, I can answer that question backwards because I think that uh, uh, is, you know, integrated to the whole experience itself. Um, but definitely I was experiencing symptoms much earlier. I mean, I think when you get to the point where you uh, you are actively engaging in suicidal behavior. That's a little bit too late, uh, to say the least. Um, and I wish I didn't have to like get to that sort of emergency point. Um, but you know, that was definitely something that was affecting me in terms of like my family and my background. So I'm a first generation Chinese American immigrant, and like a lot of immigrant families, you know, like we uprooted our whole lives to. Um, come to the U.S., um, you know, hope of, of a better future, and all of that. Um, my parents didn't speak English, and um, I am from the poorest province in China as an ethnic minority there, not Han Chinese, which is what most Chinese people are, which means um, there are a lot of uh, traditional beliefs within my family background, uh, especially given that we come from a rural village. Um, that is not uh, really prominent even in, you know, other Chinese people. Uh, so, so this is like I, probably things that deviate from Western and Eastern medicine is what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And not even necessarily deviating from Eastern medicine, but perhaps delving a bit too much into the traditional side of that. Like my dad is a, back in China, he was a traditional Chinese medicine doctor. And, um, I think there's a lot of merits to what we call TCM, traditional Chinese medicine, but, uh, there is also like the notion where because your mind and body are one that if there's something wrong with your mind, um, Oh, it's probably just because there's something wrong with your body. So, you know, it's supposed to be more easily dismissible that way, I suppose. So it doesn't really leave room for a mental illness diagnosis really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, it's also tough because I think for a lot of people, um, and immigrants, especially, I think, you know, there's this common narrative and belief that, oh, your parents or your uh, ancestors went through so much difficulties to get to where you are today. So how could you possibly dare to feel anything other than grateful and, and happy? And so there was just a lot of, you know, different factors, I think, happening that um, made me question if I even had the right to uh, seek out help um, or if maybe I was just being too much of a crybaby or whatever else. So what did that look like in terms of seeking help? Was that something that you sought independently of your family because it was available to you through your school or did you get your family involved from an early stage as well? This is something that I mostly sought help for independently, um, which was very difficult because I was, you know, uh, 13 and uh, the American healthcare system has a lot of challenges in and out of itself. Uh, And I think sort of the one thing that is both, you know, a helpful vector in this sense, but also problematic in and out of itself was um, around that time was also when I uh, started having an autoimmune-related um, eye disease called anterior uveitis. And this 
eye disease basically uh, would triple, quadruple, etc. My eye pressure from that of a normal person's um, to the point where it would like swell my veins, and um, I would essentially go temporarily blind. Um, and the temporarily part was very much like you know questionable because every time I got an episode, it was unclear if the med- medications would work or if maybe that was going to be the last time that um, I was able to see. And that sort of physical illness, which is oftentimes a lot more acceptable for people um, to understand as an illness, you know, that allowed me to go see doctors a lot more frequently than I think I would have been able to otherwise. And um, because my disease was so severe, I was part of a um, program in California that, um, you know, included a psychiatrist in all of my my uh, appointments per se. So I think that was also helpful. Though of course, I brought with it a lot of its own type of pain, um, but it did allow me to get to the doctor on a more frequent and reliable basis. This is so interesting to me because <laughs> so rarely do you hear about an autoimmune disease that comes along with its own psychological. Uh, component in care, right? But Mm. also that at such a young age, you were dealing with a disease that was leaving you so up in the air in terms of your abilities um, and that the mental health care was provided for you there. I mean, you're really sort of stuck between these two worlds where there's provision and lack thereof. And as Mm. you say, you know, it got to the point where you were really enacting suicidal behaviors um, before you were able to do something about it and luckily you caught yourself in time as it were. So how did all of this relationship with the medical system, which you had that was obviously quite positive in most ways, Mm -hmm. lead you to the diagnosis? Was it something that you worked through with the psychiatrist who was assigned to you or did you seek additional uh, care? Yeah. So I ended up having to seek additional care because I think, um, you know, it's, it's more in recent years, I feel like, that the link between uh, psychological distress and physical illness has been made more prominent, or as we call it, psychosomatic symptoms, right? Physical manifestations of that distress. Um, and a lot of uh, research shows that this tends to happen even more so for people from uh, cultures and backgrounds that really tend to um, emphasize that mind and body link and perhaps uh, in that way, also heavily stigmatized the idea of a mental illness, uh, which was true for me. And so, you know, when I was uh, at the doctor, uh, at the doctor seeing the psychiatrist through uh, my eye disease, um, the things were not f- the things we talked about were not framed in like a oh, are you like feeling like you know. Uh, suicide or whatever, but rather it was more like, oh, how are you dealing with like the psychological repercussions of your uh, eye disease and like all like dealing with the healthcare system and all of that. So it was like it opened the conversation for me to feel more comfortable with talking about mental health, but it um, didn't recognize that link between mental health and like my own psychological illness. And at the same time, you know, to be fair, I wasn't very open uh, and upfront about my psychological symptoms either because I was scared of, um, you know, what they might think. And um, at that time, I was still actively engaging in suicidal behavior and had uh, been caught in a number of suicide attempts. And so I think, you know, it was like that that increasing familiarization uh, with the idea of mental health that helped me feel like I can seek out um, other ways of care 
but it in and out of itself wasn't enough of a solution. Yeah. I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense, but it's just amazing to me that it took one disease to help you get care for the other as well. It shows sort of the, the advantages and disadvantages of the healthcare system, doesn't it? You know, as well as these stigmas that we, we place upon ourselves, upon those around us based on, you know, the ways in which we're brought up, the communities we're brought up in. I mean, it all impacts that health journey and it's important for people who are tuning in to remember that, right? That like we all come Mm -hmm. from different places, different backgrounds and that those backgrounds can influence how we move through the world in such very big ways, which really Mm -hmm. happened for you, obviously. So, you know, you mentioned that you were enacting, acting on suicidal behaviors, you know, that you were, um, you survived several attempts. So Mm -hmm. as a 13 year old girl being diagnosed with bipolar disorder, still living with anterior uveitis, Mm -hmm. What did the care plan look like for you? Oh, gosh. You know, to be honest, I think I didn't really think of there being a care plan. I remember um, hiding in, like, the school parking lot trying to, um, you know, call um, people like the suicide prevention hotline or, um, you know, calling um, the psychiatrist that uh, I had been attempting to see on the site and, like, you know, as I'm talking to them, I, I feel like this need to uh, minimize uh, my symptoms and my feelings as much as possible. I wanted to convince them and perhaps more importantly myself that this was all just a phase as some people would like to call it and that everything was fine because at the end of the day, like I was really terrified of what like something like this could mean for me, my family. Um, I didn't understand if you know, that was something that would impact my worth as a human being. Um, It just felt like I was causing more unnecessary drama and trouble uh, for everybody in my life. So, you know, it it took a long time after that. Like, in fact, I just afterwards, I just decided at a certain point that I was not going to continue pursuing care because I didn't think that it was something that I deserved. Um, And, you I was very lucky that I had a very supportive little brother who was the one who found me during my very last uh, suicide attempt. And he really sort of forced me to uh, confront my own darkness and, and choose a path that would minimize at the very least harm to him. Yeah. And much less to say to myself, because at that point, like I was no longer really caring about myself, but more about the people I cared about. And um, so because of him, I started trying to seek out other forms of self-care and self-healing. And that's, you know, part of what led to Letters to Strangers. But uh, for the most part, like I never really pursued a thorough care plan until I went to college and um, had a lot more autonomy and time to just familiarize myself with the work that I was doing and with how it relates to me on a very personal level. It sounds to me that aside from your younger brother who found you, you know, um, <laughs> you've learned to become your own advocate on this. whole. Yeah. And, and I'm wondering how that's impacted your relationship with yourself. You know, you mentioned that you started off not thinking you deserve to take up space um, you know, and obviously that's shifted because you're, you're now seeking treatment. So how has that shift occurred? Um, and what sort of 
what what sort of happened between your brother needing you uh, to show up for him and you realizing that you also had to show up for yourself and gaining autonomy with your medical care as well? Yeah, you know, I think it's it really at that time come uh, came down to the idea of even if I don't think I am anybody of value. I have so many people who are of value to me. And okay, I don't care if I am letting myself down. But the last thing I will let myself do, as long as I have a saying it, is to let those people I care about so much down. And that became like a very much of a driving force for me. So, um, you know, after my brother found me, I tried to find different ways of healing. And uh, it was when I turned to writing um, letters to strangers, for example, uh, that like, you know, things started um, to feel more okay for me. Um, and that's, you know, partly why I started Letters to Strangers as an organization, but also through those years of advocacy with Letters to Strangers and having other people come up to talk to me as if I was somebody who, you know, showed them the value of themselves. Like that was the sort of, that was the sort of trust and vulnerability that they allowed me to see that I just was fundamentally shaken by. And it made me realize that, you know, if um, it's not even about like, oh, if I can help somebody else, because in a way, like, I suppose that feels a little bit um, too, like, about me and what I can do for other people. But like, it was more just like that connection that I was able to build with these people through something, through an illness that I thought was something that that made me a terrible, unlikable, disgusting person. Like the fact that something I hated was allowing me to connect with people on such a human and soulful level that really allowed me to see that perhaps there is a lot more value um, and worth to me, my experiences and what I can do in this life uh, that I was giving myself credit for. So that was really, I think, you know, through advocacy and, and through the kindness of other people placing their trust in me, um, the turning point for me internally. I think that's so beautifully said. Why don't you tell us more about Letters to Strangers and what it is um, uh, for those who are tuning in who, to whom it's new? Um, can you give them a little background on, on how you got started and, and what the organization has grown into? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so Letters to Strangers uh, started uh, uh, as a school student club at my high school, which I started back in the October of my sophomore year of high school. Um, and this happened after my brother uh, had found me. So this was after I had experimented with writing letters and started to feel like, oh, it's so strange. I, like As I'm writing letters to like these strangers, to people I'd never met, they, like, I'm trying to be so kind and empathetic to them. But like I was denying myself of that same kindness and empathy. You know? So uh, I figured if it could help me, maybe it can help other people as well. So it started off as a school club. And like, I had to bribe my friends with pizza at lunch to like, get them to come <laughs> to the meetings. Amazing. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I remember having to do that for some clubs too. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's impossible to get a bunch of high schoolers to do anything. Unless there's free food. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but yeah, like, you know, I, I started it off very much as like, a, just like, oh, well, I'll see what happens. And then um, as I was talking to more people about it and my friends from other schools, you know, people started to show a lot of interest in it, which like blew my mind. And uh, through that, it 
slowly grew and grew uh, into a bigger and bigger organization with people starting chapters in their own schools, in their own communities. And now today, uh, we are the world's largest youth for youth mental health organization uh, with over 35,000 people impacted on six continents. Uh, and, you know, we try really hard to not just make it about destigmatizing mental illness through awareness and uh, youth for youth but also medically and professionally reviewed you know, education, but also very much tackling the, the access side of healthcare uh, by advocating for grassroots-based policy um, changes, which are run by a lot of our youth chapters, and also uh, really pushing for uh, the integration of mental health education into school curriculums around the world as well. It is unbelievable, you know, that, that <laughs> yeah. you were able to... This is what I think is so inspiring to people who are tuning into the show, you know, that you're able to get a diagnosis, you know, know that something's up and even by accident, create a community, expand that community um, and begin to get well through that community. And it really goes to show the power of that community, you know, that the minute you sort Mm -hmm. of look beyond yourself, no matter what you're dealing with. Um, you can begin to heal. And I think it's really just, it's incredible um, what you've been able to do at such a young age. Um, (laughs) Also living with various conditions and navigating those in the U.S. healthcare system, which in and of itself is complicated enough. We're going to get into that. But, (laughs) you know, I'm wondering what a typical day is like for you as you're managing symptoms. Are you still also living with anterior uveitis and having to uh, prevent episodes with that as well. Are you finding balance in your life between, between work and life as you're managing symptom management in your day to day? Yeah. Uh, thank you for that question. I mean, uh, I, I think, you know, I really wish somebody had told me about like the idea of psychosomatic symptoms earlier because, uh, as I've been healing mentally over the past few years, so has the severity and frequency of my uh, uveitis. You know, like, it's crazy to me that I, u- I spent about like half of high school just like in and out of hospitals, in and out of clinics. I often missed letters to strangers club meetings because I was at the doctor's uh, because I was having yet another episode. And yet I remain now episode free for the past two years, which is something that is inconceivable to like high school me. Uh, and I really believe that that is largely due to um, me getting better mentally. Um, and so I, you know, I, I definitely still struggle with a lot of uh, mental health episodes uh, these days, uh, but because I've uh, been, you know, seeking more consistent treatment, both from therapy and also from medication, and also uh, because I've really internalized now that idea of self-worth and truly believe that, you know what, even if I don't feel at certain times like I am someone worthy of this air that I'm breathing, I will make myself that someone who is worthy. And I'm going to commit to those ideals by really pushing through to see what I can do uh, for not just myself, but my community as well. Um, so, so that's the sort of mentality I've been very lucky in many senses to be able to now embrace. Um, but for sure, like there's still a lot of times when, um, you know, like I am experiencing a hypomanic episode and I am being extremely productive and uh, 
taking way too many risks, and then I get hit with that depressive uh, crunch, and I end up just crying by myself for weeks. And so it's definitely still something that impacts me, but I think I've just become a lot more accepting of it being sometimes a part of who I am and that that doesn't just detract from the value of me as a human being and um, every little victory counts. I think that's really beautifully said. And the fact that you've been free of episodes with the uveitis for two years, I mean, it's interesting because that mind-body connection has been part of this conversation from the very beginning. And so important that there's a mental health aspect to any kind of care for chronic illness, right? But, you know, when the mental illness itself is is a chronic illness, (laughs) (laughs) not those layers, that's for sure. But it sounds like you've really managed to, as you say, accept that some of these ups and downs are part of who you are and that you may have hypomanic and hyperdepressive episodes, but, you know, that's part and parcel of who you are and that that's to be expected. It's almost that knowing it's, it could be coming gives mm. you more freedom, doesn't it? Instead of letting yeah. it not know how to cope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, it sounds like you were taken care of, obviously, from quite a young age and taken seriously by your, your medical professionals and, and your family. But I'm wondering if you were ever in situations where you were confronted and forced to validate the existence of either your mental or physical illness to other people and, and what those situations might have looked like. Yeah. Well, actually, you know, for a very long time, my family was very much um, in denial of anything being quote unquote wrong with me. Um, That was a big sticking point in my life growing up, I think, because that was a big reason why I didn't feel like I deserved to seek care. And uh, frankly, I was in a very toxic home environment that contributed to a lot of the stressors and triggers for my mental illness. And I think that was partly also why once I left home to go to college and also I took a gap year before I went to college. And, you know, once I left home for my gap year and all that, that correlated with a turn of my mental illness for the better. So I think definitely uh, that contributed to to environmental factors for it. But also I think, um, you know, I... As I was living, uh, w- wrestling with that sort of self-denial, um, I tried really hard to throw myself into other things to validate my existence. And so for me, that thing was most obviously academics and um, just sort of paper achievement. So I did really, really well in school and um, I got a lot of like uh, ver- uh, awards for various things that were academic, but like... I remember I had a conversation with a psychology teacher I had in high school after I graduated because I didn't come out publicly with my full mental illness story until after I left home. Um, And she was telling me about how she was so surprised that I already had a mental illness back in high school because she thought I was like this, you know, happy-go-lucky, but also like kind of just always stressed out <laughs> uh, kid uh, about academics. And I was just all like, yeah, you saw that because that's what I wanted you to see. And I was trying so hard to convince people that like, I am just this like really hardworking kid who's going to put my all into academics. And I think because also as an Asian 
uh, kid, like that worked very well with stereotypes. So no one really ever questioned it. And it allowed me to hide a lot of the things that I was going through because I can always just dismiss it. I was like, oh, I'm just, you know, stressed about this test. Yep. <laughs> you know, uh, things like that. It's, it's really interesting because you also mentioned early on in this conversation, this experience of being a child of immigrants, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that your family was in denial and that the approach to medical care may have been a little differently informed than your typical, with air quotes around it, experience, right? You know, aka the white person experience in America. <laughs> um, and I'm wondering if you've if you could highlight for us some of those experiences, either of prejudice or of privilege within the healthcare system here in the U.S., um, particularly as it regards the way that that you present yourself, you know, as a Chinese American woman, you know, as a woman of color, can you see your circumstances maybe being different if you were white, if you'd grown up in a non-immigrant household, or maybe if you didn't even have the physical symptoms that that correlated with your mental health issues? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think the statistic is like over 80% of uh, mental health practitioners, mental health professionals in the U.S. identify as white. Um, So, you know, there's definitely been a cultural discrepancy, to say the least, uh, between the sort of care I think I would have most benefited from versus the care that I received uh, when I did receive it. I think, you know, there's sometimes like this sentiment, especially among um, communities of color, that like mental illness is a white person thing, and uh, also like you know if if you and I want are... I want to just say right now everyone has mental health period yes <laughs> it, it does not mental health does not discriminate like yeah for those of us for those who are tuning in right now mental health has no race and ethnicity it literally can affect anyone so exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No. So like, I think that was like a sentiment that I was also personally thinking about. Um, And so it affected like how open I was willing to be about like, you know, things when I'm talking with uh, professionals, because I'm just like, uh, I don't want to say this because like, I don't know what's going to happen to me. And I don't want them to think that like, I'm like, you know, this dramatic kid who's overacting just to get a response from people, which is what I thought of mental illness at as, as at the time. Um, and, and also, like, I think there's just certain value differences. Like, I think in the Western society, there's a lot of uh, focus on your individual feelings. So especially when you go to, like, a more common type of ther- uh, therapist, you know, uh, with cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, they tend to ask you questions like, so, you know, um, what's been bothering you? Like, tell me more about like, you know, this, and it's like, and this is presuming that you even think you have the right to be bothered, which exactly white people already usually have a certain privilege that allows them to think they have the right to be bothered where a lot of people of color don't like, this is part of the immigrant experience, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, they were asking me these questions and I'm just all like, uh, like, I don't know if like me answering this is going to reflect, reflect poorly on my family. And I don't want to explain like the, the values that we have in my family and in my culture that like, uh, I think justify certain behaviors, but which might sound really like, uh, crazy to like a person who is not of my background. And like, you know, it just, yeah, it made me self-censor a lot and made me really wary of what I felt like I could talk to uh, them about. 
And also it's like, I, I was afraid that like they would misinterpret some of the things I might say. Like if I said, oh, my family is giving me a lot of pressures. I think the stereotypical response when they see my face is like, oh, do you have tiger parents who are you know, pressuring you too much about school? And I'm like, bruh, I wish that was like, you know, <laughs> situation. <laughs> Yeah, but like you know, it's just like I didn't. Uh, there's just so many nuances to to my cultural experience, and I didn't have the energy. I didn't have the sort of maybe even self confidence to uh, to feel like I should delve into that. And so I just chose to act like it didn't exist. So does that mean that you know, if you're especially a young person who's still coming into their own with regard mm-hmm. to mental health? Does it mean that in many ways there needs to be more access to mental health care for people of color by people of color? Like it sounds like you were talking to white therapists, you know, Mm -hmm. and like maybe if you'd been speaking to someone who was from the same area as your family in China, then that might have brought a certain level of understanding. It would have leveled the playing field a little bit, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, in my past few years of uh, advocacy, and I guess it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's been over five years now since I really started doing this work. But uh, one thing that has come up over and over again is the Chinese community and the larger Asian communities outpouring of support for me whenever they hear about what I do. Because for a lot of these uh, parents and families, they know that there's an issue, but they don't really know how to talk about it or go about seeking care for it, especially in a very white-centered system. And um, in fact, the diagnostic manual, uh, the DSM, that's used to diagnose mental illnesses by mental health professionals, um, for the most part, culture-bound syndromes are included only in the appendix. And oh my goodness. So, okay, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. And so, you know, it's very much like people don't really think of the mental health care system as something that is available for uh, conversations within communities of color. And um, I had, you know, this one time when I was giving uh, a talk in uh, all Chinese uh, to an all-Chinese parent sort of audience. And it just blew my mind because I think for a long time, I thought that my Asian heritage and background um, was part of why I didn't, you know, want to seek mental health care. And I mean, that is still true to an extent, but it made me realize after talking with them that it's not like they didn't care and it's not like they didn't have an understanding, um, but it was more that they had no way of how to navigate it. And Mm. when they also maybe didn't have like specifically the language for it either, like if it's not something that's part of the heritage. Yeah. Exactly. And so when I was able to talk to them about it uh, with language that they understood and ask somebody who they felt like they could relate to, um, suddenly like, the empathy and like the care that was shown by these parents, by these families, it just blew me away. And I wish that was the greater dialogue about it rather than like, oh, you know, uh, Asian parents or like immigrant parents are super strict or like, you know, whatever else. Absolutely. And it sounds like part of the outreach, not just to people who were living with mental illness, but also to young people who are looking forward to careers perhaps in medicine is the message here is, hey, we need more mental health professionals who come from all different backgrounds. So if it's something that interests you, pursue it. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. I had this one... um, 
girl come up to me because like a lot of uh, kids also like especially kids of color like they relate to me a lot as well because I think oftentimes on panels I am the only person of color I'm the only young person etc and like I've often had kids come up to me and they're like you know I want I, I told my parents I want to be a doctor and I want to get a doctorate and they were super excited and I told them I wanted a, a doctorate in psychiatry and then they were so disappointed immediately <laughs> wow. like there's that, like, it's so outside the the understanding and experience yeah mm. yeah so I really wish there's you know more more emphasis on getting people of diverse backgrounds into the provider side of things and that's you know actually that's one thing that we've been trying to do at letters to strangers is we uh, this we just wrapped up our second annual round of scholarships but we've been working on providing scholarships that emphasize um mental health as a possible career path for people of color, for people of underprivileged backgrounds, et cetera. Well, another amazing thing that you are doing. Um, (laughs) So why don't we dig into our healthcare system a little bit here too, because your Mm. experience has been wide and varied. Um, Can you talk to us about ways in which you've seen the healthcare system in the U.S. work for patients and ways in which it's really not? I mean, we're already talking about a lot of this inherent privilege and prejudice that exists, you know, um, particularly in the divide between white and, and, you know, ethnic and racial minorities, if you will, you know, and I'm wondering, you know, how does that change your experience of the healthcare system? Yeah, you know, I think I was quite lucky to be in California, uh, because so my family um, was uh, living below the poverty line, which uh, meant that like you know we 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 were really just using uh, government subsidized and supported healthcare programs, and there was like a special one called CHIP, uh, which is I forget what it exactly stands for, like Children's something something something. Um, oh, Children's Health Insurance Program, maybe. Anyway, point being. Uh, I was very lucky to be able to be a beneficiary of that because I highly doubt I would have been able to access healthcare otherwise or even in other states uh, with the sort of family monetary background that we had. Um, but I think, you know, it's... The, the thing that I wish people were more aware of was just like the time commitment uh, of caring for someone with a chronic illness. Like at the time, because I was, you know, under 18... I always had to have a parent or guardian with me whenever I went to the doctor. And because I was at, uh, I was seeing uh, eye doctors like half the time, um, that required a lot, a lot, a lot of um, time from my parents to be at the doctors with me. And so it often ended up being that like, because I was really lucky that my parents and my family, you know, we were uh, engaged in like a small business of our own. So at the very least, we could do work um, on the go. Um, but I can certainly imagine that without that sort of uh, flexibility in their work schedules, this would not have been possible. And in fact, like one of the reasons why I didn't want to seek uh, mental health care was also because I couldn't bear with the thought of adding even more pressure onto them um, to have to go to even more things with me. Which is another note on why, you know, when it comes to health care that, that people are paying for and when people are on government subsidized programs, mental health care needs to be a priority as much as a physical condition is within these systems, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, we're certainly seeing that gap in the system right now with, with COVID, aren't we? You know, the, oh, God. The, the gaps of people who are being left behind um, and this separation 
with the 99% and the 1%, it it's becomes ever more clear, you know? Um, mm. I'm wondering also as a side note, you know, how the COVID experience is impacting your mental health and, and your coping techniques. I mean, right now you've been abroad for most of this experience, um, in a place mm. that experienced COVID well before the U S did. And I'm mm-hmm. wondering, you know, what you've seen in your community um, in terms of coping strategies and how people who are living with mental illness and mental health issues are finding this self-isolation to be. Yeah, I, you know, it's definitely been very tough. Um, I was talking to some of my friends about it and how like, so I uh, was putting a government guarded uh, quarantine facility uh, for two weeks because I was away in Myanmar um, when a new law passed in Singapore that uh, required um, stay-home notices for anyone returning returning from Southeast Asian countries. And then the university I was in decided to um, up that level uh, up that a level for me by putting me in that quarantine facility. And so I was uh, locked in this like 100 square feet, you know, room by myself, uh, for 14 days. And I didn't see another human being. (laughs) Yeah. So like, you know, it was like, I, I even tried to, you know, uh, open the door right at like mealtime so that like when the people who deliver the food came, I could like at least see their faces, but like they often would just leave the food on like the door handle and then run away. And then, so like, it was like, I can't see any, I can't see any human faces. I didn't have that sort of human, like uh, interaction and I just spiraled. Like I had not felt the degree of, um, depression, um, that I did during quarantine. Like for, I had, I hadn't felt that way for a very long time. And, uh, it just really brought back a lot of negative, uh, memories for me. And I don't blame anybody for that. Like, I think it's very important that they do this for public health. And so I completely understand uh, the situation that um, they had to put me in. Um, but it also makes me empathize a lot more with people who are in self-isolation, whether that be, you know, self-implemented or be government facilitated during this time, because it's very, very difficult to be trapped in your own head when your head is your own worst enemy. Um, so that's something that I've been thinking about a lot. And, you know, I've been doing some webinars and things like that about uh, mental health during COVID-19. And certainly everybody's been affected mentally to some extent, regardless of a mental illness or not. Uh, it's very hard to be living through this time. Um, but also like it just emphasizes as well for me, like when I see things that are like, Oh, just, you know, make sure that you self care. And I'm like, great. But like, (laughs) you know, it's a very privileged point of view, this self care thing. Yeah. I I struggle with the self care thing because the idea of it to me is it's so riddled with problems, you know? Um, Mm. and, and self care is the idea that a lot of people have about self care is very limiting for people who are limited by geography or income or, you know, a a million factors. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's very interesting you bring that up. I'm glad you do. Yeah, thank you. No, yeah, for sure. I mean, like, like we, we use self care in a lot of our, like, 
you know, dialogue about it and got an education about it. But like, so we recently, last November, we published, uh, we as in Letters to Strangers, uh, published the world's first youth for youth mental health guidebook. And it's like this be a myth of like a book. It's fully illustrated, 80,000 words, A to Z of mental health, written entirely by 14 to 21 year olds, but reviewed by medical and industry professionals. Uh, point being, I bring this up because we have a section in there called Protective Factors and Self-Care. And what we really try to do in that section is dispel a lot of the myths around self-care and really illuminate more about what it's supposed to be. Because I think one thing that I had struggled with for a long time was this idea of self-care being something that felt a little bit narcissistic to me, especially coming from a background where community values are so much more important than like uh, individual, uh, you know, sort of temporary self-satisfaction or whatever. Which COVID's Um, reminding us of that the community is more important than the individual too, in case we were wondering. (laughs) no way (laughs) yeah no for sure so I think that's something that I've been thinking about a lot especially with COVID as well yeah I think that's really well said and we'll certainly link to the book um on the website page for this episode as well so that everyone can access it so we're sort of getting to the end I mean I feel like this is so rich there's so much more we can dive into and I want to like talk to you for a million hours but in order (laughs) to keep this within you know podcasting uh time limits I I wanted to head into our top three lists I like to wrap up my interviews with a couple of top three lists and the first one is I'm wondering what your top three tips might be for someone who maybe they suspect something's a little off with them, or maybe they have a diagnosis, maybe they are a young person like you were navigating the system. What tips would you give for others who are living with invisible conditions? Yeah, you know, I think, uh, firstly, embracing um, that, you know, you are someone who is deserving of care. And if there is something that is hurting you, that that doesn't reflect like, you know, your self-worth, but rather just highlights um, the importance of you uh, taking care of yourself so that, you know, you can provide better for yourself and for the people around you that you care about. Um, that being said, I think there's, oh gosh, just uh, how do I say this like concisely? Okay, so basically I think- You don't uh, need to be been, concise. You can speak as long as you wish. <laughs> thank you. Uh, uh, well, I mean, you know, I think uh, with social media and with a lot of the way that the media portrays and perhaps even you could say romanticizes mental illness, um, I've been seeing a sort of alarming trend uh, where people uh, not only self-diagnose, but sort of over-pathologize mental illness. So like- uh, equating being sad with being depressed, equating being moody with being bipolar. And uh, it, it leads to some dangerous consequences, like it just sort of simplifies and dismisses some of the more severe nuances of these illnesses. Um, and I think it also kind of, uh, commer- not commercializes it, but like it just, like, oh gosh, the most disturbing thing I heard. So I was talking, I guess I talk a lot to high schoolers and people of that age with my, uh, with my work. This kid came up to me and was telling me about how like just, she just dropped this like casually in the middle of the conversation. She said, oh, you know, yeah, like depression isn't like cool anymore. Cause like everybody can say they have it. So like bipolar disorder is like the new thing. And I was what? like, what? Yeah. What are the kids up to these days? Gee. <laughs> well, you know, like it's, it's, it's like, this need for, for, um, like one up getting, 
again, it's like, you know, you want to have empathy and attention from people. And with social media being something that attracts attention constantly, uh, you have to resort to new ways to, mm-hmm. to get that level of attention. And um, there's even been like, uh, there was an article on The Economist a while ago that was talking about the rising um, in, in, in digital self-harm where people would make fake accounts to bully themselves to see if they could draw like, oh my goodness. you know, yeah, to see if they could draw, uh, you know, support from people who they think might or might not be their friends and who they want to test the loyalty of, um, things like that. And like, you know, I think it's, it's the difficulty with this is like, on one hand, it's very easy to like, be like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with these people? Why are they being like this? But on the other hand, it highlights that there's like a deeper societal, uh, level of insecurity that we need to address and um like you know it's 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 easy to be it's it's very tempting to be like fully judgmental with this but i think i've also had to wrestle with my own internal uh judgments to really try to tackle this from an empathetic point of view um and and so that's something that i think is important especially for young people today when they think they might have a mental health condition is to fully educate themselves on what mental illness means and to know that you don't have to have like a full-blown diagnosis to be deserving of seeking help. Uh, there's very much, you know, value to being preventative about your mental health care. And um, however much we may be hurting, like, as, uh, if we're hurting, that's enough reason to care. And and um, I hope we can extend that care regardless of um, the level of diagnosis that someone may have so that we can normalize the idea of uh, seeking health care from your mental health uh, without having to like amplify it or overblow it. Yeah. yeah. Or even to validate it, just knowing that like if something's a little funky, it's time to get it checked out. Yeah. Yeah, mm. exactly. So that's sort of like tips one and two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what I else would you offer as advice? Yeah. Uh, I think also just like remember that people don't really care that much. Like I think like, you know, if there's something that you're really embarrassed about or that you like are like, you know, trapped in your own thoughts about ricocheting inside your head, like people are so busy with their own lives that like, if you mess up, it's okay. Like, honestly, just like, no, no one's going to remember this. So just, you know, don't beat yourself up over it. Mm, I think that's a great reminder, especially for young people who are dealing with that, you know, um, that kind of peer pressure and things like that in school. So Mm. what about, this one, top three things that give you unbridled joy. So despite any, I know this is a good one. It's juicy. So like despite any kinds of like changes you've had to make in your life, um, to manage symptoms Mm. of, you know, your mental illness or of your physical condition, you know, this could Mm. be like guilty pleasures, secret indulgences, comfort activities. If you're having a flare up, things like that. What are three things Mm. that make you super, super joyful that you turn to when you need a little boost? Yeah, I love this question. Uh, I think, okay, so uh, the first answer obviously has to be writing. <laughs> it yep. means a lot to me. Um, I think also uh, food, obviously. Oh, gosh. Well, and you're in Singapore right now, so like I imagine you're getting some amazing food over there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that's like one of the top reasons why I don't want to go back to the States. <laughs> Can't leave all this behind. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, and then... Um, Thirdly, I think, uh, I think it's um, the the vastness of of things. Like what I mean by that is, whenever I feel trapped, like there's it, it blows my mind when I then think about like 
just how vast everything is, how many new experiences there are to be had, how many new places there are to visit, how many new people there are to meet. The vastness of things defies logic in a way. And it, and it forces me to confront the idea that no matter how trapped or uh, isolated or whatever else I might be feeling, that there is so much more to be explored out there. And that makes life itself worthy of a chance. That's really, really gorgeous and very deep. For me, that's like living in LA and going to the ocean. I mean, there's no better reminder of how much bigger the universe is than you when you're stuck in your head like that than like looking at the ocean for me at least. So that's, that's really, uh, I think that's really great and a great tip for like anyone who's like, how do I get out of my head? Go look at something bigger. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us? I mean, absolutely. Please share where the listeners uh, for this episode can find letters to strangers and find the work you're doing. Yeah. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. So mm. I think, you know, if people can uh, are interested, they can learn about how to get involved with us um, or, um, you know, get things like the guidebook on our website at letters to strangers.org. And we offer uh, the black and white PDF of the, of the guidebook for free to download. So it's, so we are trying to make it as accessible as possible. Though, of that's, course, that's we appreciate- about as accessible as it gets. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah. So of course, yeah, but, yes, you know, appreciate donations. Yes. And we have physical copies and full color copies for uh, purchase that I think um, bring it to a whole new level since we have so many illustrations uh, in the book as well. Um, But yeah, and on social media, we are available um, at the letter L, the number two, the letter S, mental health. So L2S, mental health. Um, and yeah, you know, I would be very happy to, to talk to people about, um, their thoughts on mental health and what they would like to get involved in, um, it's a constantly evolving field and, and I just am really grateful to be seeing this increase in attention, uh, in care, in education surrounding it, especially within communities of color or otherwise marginalized backgrounds. Well, there's no better place to wrap it up than that. Diana, it has been such an <laughs> honor and a pleasure speaking to you today. And I look forward to seeing how Letters to Strangers continues to grow. And guys, if you're tuning in and you're like, I'm a teacher, I need to have Diana come speak at my school. Like go check out the website, go find out about what Letters to Strangers is up to and and see if, uh, you know, you can get someone to uh, come and talk to your kids because this is the future, you know? Um, Exactly. (laughs) And this can all be done virtually as well while we're in the midst of the COVID thing, you know, a lot of stuff online. (laughs) plenty of resources there as well. So um, Diana, thank you so much. And uh, we wish you well in your future endeavors and hopefully we'll be able to have you back sometime soon. Thank you so much. And I am super grateful for your thoughtfulness and, and uh, empathy in conducting this conversation. So you guys need support. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you need support. Here it is. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.